I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Today we bring you Melvin Urofsky, one of the country's most respected legal historians, who recently joined me at the National Constitution Center to discuss his great new book, Dissent and the Supreme Court. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to part two of the Bill of Rights Book Fair of the National Constitution Center. Uh, I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution, which is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. <laughs> and we had a superb opening to this great uh, 224th uh, birthday for the Bill of Rights this morning. And we have a blockbuster afternoon for you. I am thrilled, ladies and gentlemen, to introduce you to one of my legal heroes. Uh, the gentleman who uh, you see before you, uh, Melvin Urofsky, is uh, the greatest biographer of Louis Brandeis of our time. And uh, as, as some of you know, I've uh, written a short uh, book about why Brandeis matters today and what he can teach us about contemporary questions ranging from privacy and free speech and technology to the curse of bigness and business and government. And I learned so much from Mel, who was so generous uh, in reading the manuscript, and he's just a model of a scholar, uh, of, a, of a, a, a teacher who is able to bring to life Brandeis and the many other figures that he's written about so that citizens around the country uh, can understand it. He has an extraordinary... Uh, array of uh, publications in addition to his uh, definitive biography of Brandeis, A Life. Uh, he's uh, written American uh, books on American uh, Zionism. Uh, and his uh, latest book, uh, which we're here to discuss, is so wonderful and so timely and just so um, provocative that I couldn't put it down. It's Dissent and the Supreme Court, its role in the court's history and the nation's constitutional dialogue. Uh, and I can't wait to discuss it with you. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Melvin Urofsky. Uh, goodbye, Jeff. I can't top that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you don't need to because you have with this great book. And we've just had a blast. We had a wonderful lunch where we uh, couldn't resist starting to talk about it. Um, I have to begin with the obvious question. Why did you choose to write about dissent? Uh, Brandeis. Uh, it was a logical step to go from there because Brandeis, of course, is uh, one of the great dissenters. And um, according to Mark Tushnet, um, his opinion in the <clears throat> Whitney case is the greatest dissent ever written. And um, then I ran across an article about canonical dissents. Uh, these are dissents that are included in almost every constitutional law textbook. And um, then I ran across a very interesting statistic that up until the late 1930s, most Supreme Court opinions were unanimous. They ran an average of between 90 and 96% almost every term of unanimity, which of course is a far cry from what we have today. And so if you read about one thing, this leads you to another. And then <clears throat> the problem was that 
as I was doing some of this very preliminary research, I really had no idea which way the book was going, other than I thought I would probably get involved there. Um, I ran across a number of articles that were of no use to me. Um, a lot of them were in law reviews that would take a particular dissent and uh, parse it, which is something that you know I did as a law school student and had no desire to do again. Then there were a lot of political science articles that were even worse than useless because, unfortunately, political science these days is more interested in counting than in analyzing. Um, so you would get articles like, why are more dissents written on Tuesday than on Thursday? <laughs> and what I wanted to explore was, what role does the dissent itself play, other than to for the person who wrote it to say, I don't agree with you. And the answer I came up with, which is sort of buried in the subtitle of the book, is the notion of a constitutional dialogue. Um, most dissents are justly forgotten as soon as they're written, as are, I'm afraid to say, majority of all cases. Uh, but some of them ring on. Um, and you have to deal with them, the, you know, not just the judges sitting now, but the future. Um, a good example of this is Hugo Black's dissent in Betts v. Brady, where he first raises the question of whether the Sixth Amendment should apply to the states. And his argument is that you cannot have a fair criminal trial unless a defendant has a, an attorney there. The majority of the court disagrees. And over the next 20 years, Black's dissent was like Banco's ghost. Every time a case came up involving a lack of a lawyer, uh, there is Hugo Black, who is saying, you've got to have one, you've got to have one. Um, until gradually, the court is won over. And in Gideon versus Wainwright, I think that Chief Justice Warren did an absolutely wonderful thing he assigned the case to Black, who never thought, as he put it, that he would live to see it overturned. But that is the type of dissent that gets into this dialogue. Every succeeding Sixth Amendment case, um, there is Black dissenting, and then they go to this thing about, well, special circumstances to avoid Betts v. Brady until finally it's won over. Um, and that was what I was looking for. How do dissents play in the constitutional dialogue. And it's the dialogue among the justices. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg tells a wonderful story about how what started out as a dissent won over a majority of the court. She said it was, it was a wonderful feeling. Um, it's a dissent with Congress. You can't do it this way, but you might be able to do it that way. Um, and it's also um, a dialogue with the American people. Uh, in The Federalist, uh, Hamilton calls the court the least dangerous branch because they have neither the power of the purse nor of the sword. So then how come we listen to the court? How come the American people, for the most part, after a case like Brown, let's say, how come the South didn't just rise up and revolt? Well, parts of it did. But for the most part, the court's Prestige depends on its ability to communicate uh, with the American people. 
Uh, this is becoming, I think, more obvious now um, because more and more of the justices are going out, they're giving talks, they're writing books. Uh, but Brandeis' clerks all retell the same story that whenever he wrote a dissent, um, there would come a point where he would turn to the clerk and say, I think we've now made our case. How do we make it more informative? In other words, how do we make it more teachable? How do we make it more open to the people to understand what's going on? Which is too long a question to you. Answer to your question. Not at all. It beautifully tees up the significance of this book. And as, as Mel says, the idea of the Constitution as a conversation among people of fundamentally different points of view is central to the evolution of constitutional dialogue. It's central to what we're trying to do here at the Constitution Center by bringing together people of different points of view. And that's why this book is so significant. Let's just start from the beginning and move up. Obviously, I want to talk about Brandeis, our favorite topic. But let's begin with John Marshall. John Marshall comes to the court. It's an enfeebled institution. The, the first appointees as chief resign. They, they keep turning down the office because it's not worth having. And he conceives of it as a single court by persuading his colleagues to converge around narrow, unanimous opinions. He rejects the British tradition of seriatim opinions, as you describe it, where every justice says, this is what I think and this is where I think. And instead, he gets the court to speak as a court. This drives his arch rival, as you say, Thomas Jefferson, crazy, his distant cousin who thinks that Marshall is letting people connivingly hide behind the cloak of unanimity. Tell us about Marshall's vision of unanimity and how he was able to pull it off. <clears throat> um, I don't know how many of you have ever read a seriatim case. Um, I always assign one in my class um, early on, and then I ask the students, tell me what was said here. And it's very confusing. If you have, let's say, even seven opinions, then you count. Well, four of them say this, but they don't all say it the same way. So we think that this guy won, but then we're not sure. So that um, in terms of a common law tradition where you can use a case for precedent, you know, this case will affect others similarly situated, seriatim doesn't help a lot. Uh, actually, it was Oliver Ellsworth, who was the predecessor to John Marshall, who first starts trying to get the court to deliver an opinion of the court. He's only partially successful. Marshall, though, believes in it the same way that uh, Chief Justice Mansfield believed it in England. That's where they got the idea from, because Mansfield, while he was Chief Justice, um, instituted the notion of an opinion of the court. Now, there are a lot of people, even today, who do not believe in dissent thinks all dis dissents ought to be squashed because the court should speak in one voice. Uh, this was Marshall's view, not so much that dissents could be squashed. He couldn't squash all of them. But there weren't that many important dissents in his time. And um, he was able to convince his colleagues that it would be better. Now, he wrote or delivered almost all of these. Not only did he get them to believe in an opinion of the court, but for the most part, they wanted him to deliver that opinion, whether he wrote it or not. This drove Thomas Jefferson crazy, uh, partly because the judiciary was the last part of government to remain in Federalist hands after 1800. And Jefferson was worried, with no real good reason, uh, that the court would undo everything that he and the, you know, the Jeffersonian Republicans were trying to do, which didn't happen. 
Um, but Marshall set the stage for this. Um, and it did work. The court, by the time Marshall leaves in the 1830s, is a much more powerful instrument. It has handed down at least a dozen classic decisions that affected, have affected the country ever since. And um, it set the stage. Now, part of what I do in the book, there's a chapter later on called The Return of Syriatum. And that's as we get, since the 1940s, we've almost gone back to uh, that. And almost every term, there's at least one case that has seven, eight, or even nine opinions attached to it. So let me ask you about why Marshall Vision succeeded in his time and why it uh, later failed. You do give the statistics during Marshall's tenure as chief from 1801 to 1835, of more than 1,000 cases, only 87 had dissenting or concurring opinion, around 7%, the lowest of any period in the court's history. By contrast, after the Judges' Bill of 1925 under Chief Justice Taft, uh, you say that the uh, number of unanimous opinions before the act was 91%, after the act it was 85%. Why did the judge's bill yeah. decrease the number of unanimous opinions? And more broadly, this is, let me just phrase the question really uh, starkly and broadly because it's so important. When Chief Justice Roberts took office, he told a, a bunch of uh, interviewers and he gave speeches. And I, I had a, the honor of, a, of an interview with him uh, for a, a book with a thrilling title, The Supreme Court. It's one of the most creative uh, book titles ever uh, imagined. It was a companion book to a Supreme Court series, and he's a PBS fan, so he talked to me for this book. And he said he was going to make Marshall his model and try to encourage unanimous opinions. He's obviously had mixed success in doing that, although he recognized that it was harder today than it was in Marshall's time. So, Mel, if you were advising Chief Justice Roberts, what was it that changed between Marshall's time and his time that made it harder to achieve unanimous opinions? We'll start with the judge's bill, which... um Uh, William Howard Taft got through Congress. Uh, In the early 1920s, Louis Brandeis tells Felix Frankfurter that most of the cases we get, it's more important that they be decided than that they be decided right. And uh, when I was doing uh, the research on it, Congress had given the right of appeal to all sorts of things to go up to the Supreme Court. Uh, I went through... Uh, two years of Supreme Court reports in the early 1920s. There were local bankruptcy cases. There were bankers' liens. There were um, tort cases. There were disputes. I bought a horse, he delivered a mule type of thing. Uh, (laughs) The sort of stuff that would now be decided in either a magistrate's court or certainly no higher than a local state court. But because of the way that Congress had framed the court's jurisdiction, You know that old thing, I'll fight it up to the Supreme Court? Before 1925, you could. Now, what Taft's vision was that the Supreme Court become primarily a constitutional court and that it have only three jurisdictions. One is the original jurisdiction assigned to it by the Constitution, disputes between states and those involving ambassadors. Secondly, constitutional questions involving whether or not a particular act or something violated a clause in the Constitution. And third, statutory interpretation of congressional acts. Um, Once you limited it to those, now it was important not only to decide, 
but to decide rightly, which means that people who had strong constitutional views, a Brandeis, a well, McReynolds is another story, but a Sutherland, they're looking to be consistent from one constitutional case to another. And if you're on the short side of the vote, you don't want to be associated. Now, it used to be that people who disagreed would just note their disagreement, not even file a dissent. Now you started filing dissents. But uh, Brandeis was very chary. He only had one clerk. So for him to write a dissent, especially the type he wrote, involved an enormous use of resources of time and his clerk. Justices now have four clerks. So it's easy for someone like Scalia to say, okay, clerk one, you do the research on this dissent. Clerk two, you do it on this. They do the research, and he can hand out four dissents where it wouldn't have been possible. I, I told Jeff before, if I had research assistants who did all that work for me, I could write a book every three months. <laughs> As opposed to every yeah. uh, four months. Yeah. And <laughs> as opposed to four months. <laughs> Another thing that happened is the arrival of the prima donnas. Uh, this happened with the Roosevelt appointees, Felix Frankfurter, Hugo Black, William O. Douglas, and Robert H. Jackson. Um, a nastier group of people you could hardly imagine. <laughs> Tell the, the, the Frankfurter story, what he said on the train home from when Fred Vinson, the chief justice, drops dead in the middle of the deliberation over Brown versus Board of Education, Frankfurter says, this is the first indication I've ever had that, that there is a, a God. That there is a God. <laughs> Frankfurter, was a very Charming. Frankfurter was a nasty person in many ways, unless you agreed with him. Um, he used to, uh, at conference, he would talk for 50 minutes. Why? Because that was the length of the lecture at the Harvard Law School. And he made the assumption that his colleagues didn't know anything, so he had to teach them. And what did Douglas do when he started going on? Oh, uh, Douglas would go to the couch and read his mail. <laughs> and uh, Doug, Douglas would give it to him every time. Sometimes when there was a bad argument before the court, Douglas would pass down a note saying, Felix, I understand he was one of your students at Harvard. Um, <laughs> after Frankfurter had finished uh, or, you know, one of his lectures, uh, Douglas would say, I came in here ready to vote with Felix, but you've talked me out of it. <laughs> and, um, you know, little things like that. One time, Frankfurter told um, Rutledge, who was the most mild manner and sweet person, you should do what I tell my students when we're doing statutory interpretation. You should read the statute three times before you make any judgment. Uh, needless to say, this did not win him many friends on the court. And when they refused to follow his lead, he just became more and more embittered. Uh, he wrote more dissenting opinions than majority opinions. Um, even if he agreed with the results of the thing, he always thought that whoever wrote it got it wrong, so he would write a concurring opinion saying, I agree with the result, but this is how they should have done it. Um, I've had some book reviewers who've written that. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, contrast Frankfurter, who you say is remarkable for his lack of influence. He wrote all these dissents, and yet they're never cited today with what the justice you call the first great dissenter, John Marshall Harlan, who exerted a kind of prophetic force. You talked about the prophetic dissent, where Harlan, dissenting in Plessy versus Ferguson, the only person to condemn the unconstitutionality of separate but equal, dissenting in the court's decision to strike down the Civil Rights Act of 1875, dissenting in First Amendment cases, sets forth a vision that the court 
nearly a century later will embrace. And Thurgood Marshall reads Harlan's dissent in Plessy for inspiration before he argues Brown. What is the difference between the ineffective dissents of Frankfurter and the prophetic dissents of Harlan? Well, I think uh, my friend Mark Tushnet gave me a very interesting clue here. He said, you can't tell the great dissents until history has made its judgment. So in other words, we may be getting some great dissents from the Roberts Court, um, but we don't know it yet because we don't know what influence it's going to have. Now, Brandeis's opinion in um, Whitney takes 40 years before the court catches up and adopts it. That's the free speech case until the court catches up to it. His opinion in Olmsted, where he sets forth a right to privacy and a new view of the Fourth Amendment, takes almost 40 years for the court to catch up with that. Harlan was, uh, was dismissed as a crank. In fact, um, in, just before Brown is written, there is a, an article in the Law Review, Remembering Justice Harlan, in which uh, there was this amazing fact that there wasn't a single constitutional law textbook then in use in the United States that included Harlan's dissent in either the civil rights cases or Plessy v. Ferguson. It was practically forgotten, except by the NAACP and, about, and some others. The interesting thing, we all now are familiar with the phrase that the Constitution does not recognize any class you know, because of color or things like that, um, which was a key phrase that was used during the civil rights cases of the 50s and 60s, and now has been revived by the Roberts Court majority in opinions that have struck down efforts in Louisville and Seattle to avoid resegregation of classes. Um, Roberts believes that the only way to stop you know, action based on race is to stop talking about it, and it doesn't work. Um, Wait till you, I don't know how the Fisher case, which was argued last week, is going to turn out. That's the latest of the affirmative action cases. But if it goes against affirmative action, look for what uh, Sonia Sotomayor is going to write. So part of being a great dissenter has to be, involves being on the right side of history. Which you can't always know about at the time that you're writing. But what else can we identify? Okay, now I can't resist. Let's just jump into the great dissents of Brandeis. Our hero wrote the two greatest opinions about privacy and free speech in the 20th century. And let's begin, and by the way, so uh, June 1st is the 100th anniversary of Brandeis's confirmation. We're gonna have a blockbuster celebration here. Uh, my, my book will be out. I hope we'll get Mel back and we're gonna really dig into that. So this is just a teaser for things to come in June. But Let's begin with Whitney. As you said, it's considered a dissent, even though it was technically a concurrence. Um, I'm just going to read a few of its beautiful words uh, because it's so inspiring. Uh, Those who won our independence believe that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties and that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an end and as a means. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. And that, you say, uh, has, was almost a direct quotation from Pericles 
funeral oration as translated by Alfred Zimmern in the book that Brandeis valued more than any, the Greek Commonwealth. Why is the Whitney decision, uh, by many accounts, the greatest uh, statement okay. of free speech ever, and, and, and what made it so prescient in its time? Okay, you have to give me a moment to go back in history here. All of you know that modern free speech jurisprudence really begins with Holmes's descent in Abrams, in which um, he uses the market of ideas analogy. Um, but there's a problem with it. It's a wonderful phrase for a philosopher, which Holmes always saw himself as. Okay? It's not a very good guide to lower court judges. Remember, the Supreme Court, one of its functions is to provide guidance to lower court judges when they, you know, cases come up. What Brandeis does in Whitney is he shows why the First Amendment is important to a democracy. Not to a philosopher, but to a democracy. He's, he always said that the highest office that anyone could hold in a democracy was that of citizen. But being a citizen meant you had responsibilities. You were supposed to take part in the dialogue over public policy. You do this a number of ways, by the candidate you vote for, by going to town hall meetings, writing letters to the editors, all these sort of things which are fairly common. Um, but if you are going to make an intelligent decision about public policy, then you have to hear all the points of view. That's what he's saying in Whitney. We can't shut people up. They have to hear, the citizen has to hear not only what he already agrees with, but opposite points of view, so that he can then make an informed decision. Um, Holmes, later on, after this case, will, uh, as you recall, make the memorable statement that the First Amendment is not for speech we agree with, but for speech that we hate. And Brandeis really is leading into this you have to be able to know all the different views. And his view was that the citizenry is smart enough to dump the wrong views, the erratic views, the ones that are undemocratic. Um, we could then go into a riff on the current Republican nominees, not, but we, we're not we, going to go that way. On a nonpartisan non basis. Nonpartisan basis, right. Let's stick to Brandeis, sir. Um, as you describe it... I can this, do that on a nonpartisan non basis. That's fine. No, Brandeis is making an argument about the importance of free speech on a nonpartisan basis yes. because he is talking about the value of dissent. He's saying unless citizens have access to the best arguments on both sides That's of a exactly question, right. they cannot educate themselves and make themselves ready for the duties of democracy. That's why he says that the best um, response to bad speech is counter speech, and that's why he comes up with the most speech protective test in the history of uh, all time, uh, although uh, Madison and uh, Jefferson in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions had a vision of it as well, uh, where he says that speech can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to create imminent violence. That extraordinary principle, not shared by any European democracy today, became, as Mel said, enshrined in the American a constitution when the Supreme Court accepted it in the 60s, yeah. but I'm going to read, I, you know, I, it's, you can't read too much Brandeis, and the whole, the whole theory of American 
government and of counter-speech and of the value of dissent is, fa is found in the rest of this paragraph. He says, they believe that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth, that without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile, and that with them, discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine, that the greatest menace to freedom is an inert people, that public discussion is a political duty, and that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. That's constitutional poetry. What was, how did he build, he starts so technically, he starts with the facts, and then he's expanding slowly, and then reaches this extraordinary this, crescendo. This is Why what was makes, he so good? This is what makes, I think, a great dissent in one way. Brandeis here is laying down principles eloquently. By the way, no, he was not known for his eloquence. He was not a Holmes in terms of stylist. One of his clerks uh, said that um, Brandeis' letters to his wife read like Brandeis' briefs, point one, point two, point three. No, no, no. You quote them. He had some very tender letters. He, he does, about he does. Find have... some flannelettes of dazzling beauty, his pajamas. Yeah. He but, was joking to his wife. Um, in most of his opinions... No, those he writes for the majority. He says, I'm not speaking for myself. I'm speaking you know, for a majority of the court. They're relatively short. They're concise. They're not poetic. But when he speaks for himself, um, and he was a great fan of Periclean Greece, uh, his, his uh, prose just soars. I think it, it does the same thing um, in the Olmstead case. Uh, which is one of my favorite cases. Um, I've always said that um, the story of Roy Olmsted ought to be a case study at the Harvard Business School. Uh, this is the guy who was a policeman out in Seattle during Prohibition times. And he looks around, he says, you know, there's money to be made selling liquor, but the people around here aren't doing it right. So he leaves the police force, sets up, with uh, 10 other guys, they each throw in some money, and he sets up a business. He brings in good hooch from Canada, rents a farm out on the outside of town with a basement where he can store it. His brother stays on the police force to warn him in case there's going to be a raid. And they set up this downtown office. So if you wanted a case of good bourbon for your party tonight, you pick it up. Roy, when can you have it here? 30 minutes. Um, and he not only that, everybody in town loves him. He gives money to all the charities. Everybody knows what he is. Nobody is at all upset except the feds, who then wiretap and use the wiretap to convict him on, a, on violation of the, you know, of the prohibition law. Brandeis is appalled um, by this. Um, he's been interested in privacy ever since the 1890s. Um, and he, he, he said, modern technology um, can destroy privacy. He, there was something, he had a clipping in the file on uh, the Olmsted case of this new um, invention that was being tried out in Schenectady, New York, by General Electric, something called television. And he wanted to include it in his dissent, but his clerk talked him out of it. Because he thought it was a two-way technology where you, he anticipated Skype, basically. Yeah. He's, yeah. You know, the people could, uh, what is said in the closet shall be broadcast from the rooftop sort of thing. Um, and so he, there are two things that happen in Olmsted. First of all, he redefines the Fourth Amendment, which finally is accepted by the court in a case called Katz versus 
uh, was it United States, I think, um, in which Potter Stewart says, the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places, which is what Brandeis says uh, back in the 20s when William Howard Taft says, well, they didn't go into the building, so there was no Fourth Amendment violation. But the reason that Holmes writes a separate dissent, a short one, is he couldn't go along with Brandeis on the privacy thing. This is pure Brandeis. It's going to take a long, long time before the court recognizes it. Uh, and in fact, there's still some people on the court who don't recognize it. Um, but uh, this is an, a very, very important decision because it lays down the constitutional basis for right to privacy. And he's translating the Constitution in light of new technologies. He says, right. at the time of the framing, a smaller invasion, breaking into someone's house with a general warrant to read his diaries, was considered a violation of the Fourth Amendment. But wiretapping is worse because you can hear the conversations on both ends of the wires. And therefore, although the framers relied on the law of property, we have to anticipate what may be developed in that incredible passage. Ways may someday be developed by which it's possible without physically intruding into the home to extract secret papers from drawers and introduce them into court. He really is anticipating yeah. the Internet and saying that we have to... Uh, translate the Constitution to protect the people the who bias. write the great dissents, I think I say something, are anticipating a future that they know very little about. They're anticipating where we're going to go. And this is a good example of it. I mean, Brandeis couldn't really guess, you know, Internet, things like that. Nobody knew about them. Al Gore hadn't invented it yet. <laughs> and, and, but he's anticipating based on what he knows, that in the future it's going to be even harder to protect personal privacy. Um, he's anticipating in the speech cases how important it will be to let all viewpoints come, come through. Hugo Black is anticipating that at some point people will recognize that you can only have a fair trial with a lawyer. Harlan won. Um, is anticipating a future that no one at that time could see. If somebody had said to Harlan, you know, someday they'll elect a black president, he would have said, nah. But he did believe that you couldn't constitutionally discriminate against any group because of their color. Um, gender was another story. Is it, if you were advised, you know, all the justices would like to be prophetic dissenters. Who wouldn't? Um, is, is there a, a, bless you, is there a formula? How do you, how do, you do it? How do you anticipate the future? Uh, it's an individual genius, I think. Um, I had, um, I end the book with a coda. Um, I asked people, one, one of the uh, news things I'm on on the internet is um, a legal history review, and I put a question out there that if you had to rate any of the dissents since in the last 25 years that might become great dissents, what would they be? Knowing, of course, that we don't know how history will rate this. And I got three, three cases that got multiple votes. So I, I talk about them in them. One of them is Scalia's in the... Um, um, Morrison and Olson. Morrison case about you know, the independent counsel. Another one was William Brennan in a capital punishment case. 
And the third was Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the um, um, Affordable Care Act case. Talk about each of them because they're so interesting. Why Scalia, Justice Scalia, was here in Philadelphia at the Union League not long ago, and he also mentioned Morrison and Olson as one of his favorite dissents. Why was that so influential and prophetic? Um, well, as it turned out, you know, Congress did not renew the, the act. Um, Scalia can drive you crazy sometimes with his insistence on originalism um, or how he interprets originalism. But he's fairly consistent in trying to find out what the framers were looking for. Um, and in that case, he really is involved with the separation of powers argument. Um, what's interesting is he had only been on the bench a short time. He wrote a powerful dissent. Um, and there is you know, no flamboyance, no nastiness, uh, uh, nothing. It's, it's a very good, well-written dissent. Um, whether it will ever become, quote, a great dissent, we don't know because Congress never renewed the Independent Counsel Act. So, but there will be cases coming up involving separation of powers, and he wrote a lot in that dissent about separation of powers. So that would be influential, possibly. And Congress may have been influenced by Scalia's dissent when, in the wake of the investigation of President Clinton, they it declined it. to renew the, right. the act. The Brennan one is on a, a case where statistics showed that in capital cases, black defendants received the death penalty at a far higher rate than white defendants and at a far higher rate than their proportion of the population in that group. And um, the majority said we decide individual cases uh, just because the guy is black, those statistics don't mean anything. What we have to do is look at the particular case, and in this case, we find no fault. And Brennan writes an extremely eloquent um, dissent, uh, questioning not only the majority's refusal to accept the reality of the statistics, uh, but also questioning uh, the legitimacy in this day and age of the death penalty when the United States is one of the few countries that still has it and the company that we're in is not necessarily the company we would like to be in. Let, let me just pause yeah. on that. You have a whole chapter on Marshall and Brennan dissenting in the capital punishment cases and their ultimate view that it was unconstitutional in all circumstances. Why is it that you think that Brennan's focus on the racial disparities in the application of the death penalty may prophetically come to be embraced by the court in the future? Well, it's, uh, <clears throat> he was opposed to death penalty for white and black. Um, he thought it was barbaric and um, constituted cruel and unusual punishment, to which the majority uh, responded it was accepted by the framers and therefore, by an originalist view, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, it's the difference between the originalists and those who advocate a living constitution that you have to interpret the constitution in today's day and age, and you start with what the framers said, and then you try to see how it applies to the current day. Um, there were two things he was doing in that case. One was protesting against how black defendants in capital cases were being treated, and the second thing was protesting against the death penalty itself. 
the third case was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dissent in the Affordable Care Act, in which um, she just lacerated, I think, Chief Justice Roberts' interpretation of the Commerce Clause. Um, and she went back and showed how the Commerce Clause had developed, how it had been interpreted over time, what it had meant, and how within that interpretation, which the court had had for 40 or 50 years, the Affordable Care Act um, was not um, an oddball. So that at some point in the future, when we get more Commerce Clause cases, um, my colleagues seem to think that this is the dissent that they're going to look at for how to interpret the Commerce Clause. And the Affordable Care Act, of course, was upheld as a tax, and it was upheld the second time um, under a statutory interpretation. Does the prophetic nature of Justice Ginsburg's interpretation depend on whether or not the court significantly retrenches on Congress's power under the Commerce Clause, and there's a backlash in the country, and then new justices come with a more expansive view? It could be. The, uh, you know, as any historian can tell you, the um, interpretation of the Commerce Clause is like an accordion. Sometimes it's like this, and sometimes it's like this. And it's, but at least ever since 1942, um, it has been a relatively open interpretation. Uh, although in the last 10 years or so, uh, people, uh, primarily Justice Thomas, have been arguing for a much narrower view of the Commerce Clause. We leapt ahead because the conversation is so good over some of the dissents uh, in the chapters that you talk about, the prima donnas, which was that uh, post-World uh, War II period. And they include Hugo Black drawing on his own experience as a lawyer and arguing that to have a fair trial, a defendant needs the benefit of counsel. You talked about uh, that being vindicated in the Gideon case. And you also talk about Wiley Rutledge demanding that the victor's treatment of the vanquished adhere to traditional ideas of due process. Tell the story of Rutledge. That was a case called Inra Yamashita. Um, the Japanese had treated um, the Philippines terribly. There was no question about that. Um, but MacArthur wanted General Yamashita, who was the general in charge of the Philippines, tried for, quote, war crimes. The problem was that there was absolutely nothing connecting Yamashita to any of the horrible things, the rape, the pillaging, the murders, that Japanese troops had done uh, during the last months of the war. In fact, there was evidence to show that, uh, unlike the German generals who had weekly reports from their, even in the last days of the war, from their underlings, um, the communication between Yamashita and his field troops was practically non-existent. Um, but MacArthur wanted him executed uh, as a, um, in some ways, I think, just to, to placate the Filipinos, who were just furious. And what um, Rutledge said is, this is not due process. It doesn't follow any of our rules. It doesn't even follow the rules of military justice as to what you have to prove. Um, his was a minor voice. Uh, the only other dissenter was Frank Murphy. Um, but what happened there is when the next time the Code of Military Justice was revised by Congress, they ignored the majority opinion and adopted almost all of the suggestions that Rutledge had put into his dissent in, in Yamashita. 
Uh, John Lurie, who I think is one of our leading historians of military justice, uh, confirmed to me that it was the Rutledge view and not the majority view that currently informs um, uh, the code of military, no, uniform code of military justice. Um, and during the um, Cuban case, cases that came up about um, um, the detainees during the George W. Bush era, it was the Rutledge view that informed the majority decisions. So that's a very good test for the influence of a dissent. If it's actually yep. embraced by a future court or by Congress, you talk about Rutledge and the Uniform Code. You also talk about how Congress adopted Justice Ginsburg's view in the Lilly Ledbetter case uh, when it yep. reversed uh, that decision and uh, uh, embraced her view. And uh, it can go the opposite way. Uh, we did a great, you know, we have this wonderful collaboration with C-SPAN on landmark cases, which I hope all of you are watching. It's so much uh, fun. We've been doing 12 cases every Monday night. I did the Miranda case last night, and Paul Cassell, my great interlocutor, noted that Congress actually embraced the views of the dissenters in the Miranda case when it tried to resurrect the old voluntariness standard for confessions, but the Supreme Court ultimately refused to endorse that view in the Dickerson case. Yeah, the in interesting thing about that is the author of the Dickerson case was William Rehnquist, who had dissented several times in Miranda-style cases, saying that the warning you know, was obiter dictor, something that the court said. But in Dickerson, he says it is a constitutional test. So he had sort of come around. And this almost causes Justice Scalia's head to explode. He's so upset. He says this converts Miranda into the very Cheops pyramid of judicial arrogance. I didn't know what that was or how to pronounce it until Scalia mentioned it, but yeah. it's a symbol for I arrogance. I urge everybody here to read Scalia's dissents, even if uh, I don't agree with most of them. Uh, but he's the only man on the court who has any style in terms of writing. You know, it's, it's always fun to read his opinions. Um, and sometimes I have to go to a dictionary to look up what he says. <laughs> the court, you're right that we can, well, I've, many of them have style, I think, uh, but uh, you're, we can actually summon them out, up out of thin air, we who are total constitutional wonks who spend our time reading Supreme Court dissents. <laughs> the court has converted a Kulterkampf into a fit of spite, yeah. he said in the Romer case. Gosh, what, I didn't know what a Kulterkampf was <laughs> either, but then I learned, of course, that it was Bismarck's culture war against the Catholic Church, and Scalia was objecting to the court's having sided with uh, gay rights in yeah. Colorado. Uh, or For, good, I'm just trying to, okay. now I'm getting excited. What's your favorite? Uh, you, you, talk, you talk in this uh, book about probably the most famous single line in any dissent in history, and that is uh, Holmes's dissent in the Lochner case. The 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. Why is that such an influential line? And it's the specificity that sticks in the mind. Well, the thing is, Nobody paid attention to Holmes' dissent in Lochner for many years. Um, as a teaching tool, there were two dissents in that case. One was by John Marshall Harlan, one, and the other was by Holmes. Harlan's is the better dissent for the time. What was happening is the majority, and this included Harlan, believed that judges ought to sit as sort of a super legislature and use their own views when reviewing state court, uh, state laws. Now, in Lochner, the majority said, we look at this and we don't think this is a legitimate police power exercise. Harlan says, I look at it 
And it is a legitimate police power exercise, and this is why. And he responds uh, to Rufus Peckham's majority decision point by point. That's a good dissent. Holmes comes in and says, it's not our business. And he's the only one on the court at that time who says, puts forth what would become the rational basis test. If a rational person believes that this is a good law, that's all. It's not our business to say whether it's a good law or a bad law, only do they have the power. No one else on the court even understands this. But that line is the beginning of judicial restraint, and gradually we get this notion of a rational basis test for almost all economic uh, things. That's why Holmes is important there. But as you also say, it was, he was such a vivid writer. I mean, he could have used legalese to say the court must apply rational basis review when about, you know, he could have spoken like a, a lawyer, but the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social status. What is that? Well, it's a book of social Darwinism. And as it happens, ironically, as you note, Holmes himself is an enthusiastic social he Darwinist. He does believe that the strong should be able to crush the weak through law or else violence will result. But by saying that the 14th Amendment doesn't constitutionalize the view of this exotic social Darwinist, he's making vivid the idea that the Constitution, as he later says, is made for people of fundamentally different points of view, that beautiful ecumenicalism, which is made concrete by the specific reference. It's just a glorious line. I, I would like to just throw in before we get to the questions there. Yeah, which are good, actually. So um, get them. I mentioned Tushnet's view that only history tells us when we have a great descent. One of Brandeis's favorite sayings was, my faith in time is great. He did not expect his descents to have an immediate impact. But if, as he told his clerks, if we make it educational, then there's hope. And mm. um, although he never hired clerks on the condition that they go into teaching, uh, one time somebody told him, you know, a majority of your clerks are now teaching in law schools. And a big smile lit up his face and he says, now I have a majority. Oh. Beautiful. So beautiful. Do we um, have time for any we, questions? We've we got time and we've got great questions. And the first question, appropriately, is about Brandeis. Has Brandeis's dissent about the states being laboratories of democracy been adopted in uh, any way by legislatures and courts? We begin to get a revival of jurisprudential federalism during the Rehnquist years, in which um, Rehnquist, at first almost single-handedly, but then with other help, uh, begins to argue that the state, no, to try to put states back in what he saw as the original federal framework uh, with sovereignty divided between the states on the one hand and the federal government on the other. And here again, ever since the New Deal, no power had moved to the federal government. In the 90s, it seemed to be moving back to the states till we had 9-11, when all of a sudden everybody's looking to the federal government again for protection. Sandra Day O'Connor and many others have quoted that uh, when upholding state laws. Um, the argument would go like this. I don't know if this is a good law or a bad law, but it's not our business to say whether it's a good law or a bad law. If the state wants to do it, then wonderful because a daring state can try something and if it works, others can follow it and if it doesn't work, uh, they don't have to. Um, 
because, and then they usually quote this Laboratories of Democracy, which is um, from the Oklahoma ICE case. That's uh, beautifully explained and shows how uniform, unifying a figure Brandeis is. He is a hero both to conservative and That's Tea right. Party defenders of federalism and to progressive defenders of deference to state regulations. The next question says, does the frequency of five to four decisions now make concurrences and dissent seem more politically inspired than they used to be? I always tell my students that only the hard cases get up to the Supreme Court. And if you ever have read the briefs that both sides turn in, they both have long lists of precedents saying this supports my view and the opposition says this supports my view. Um, that the court is, of course, political, but not in the partisan sense. It's one-third of our government. And um, so there are people there, like Sandra Day O'Connor, I think, was very much alert to the political ramifications of uh, opinions, especially as they affected state government. Here again, not partisan, but politics in the sense of governing. Um, A lot of the 5-4 decisions could go either way. To give you just one example, um, you all know that last term, the court, at the end of the term, um, upheld same-sex marriage um, across the country. Well, a case had come to the court earlier on at the beginning of the term in which there had been an appeal from one of the circuits. The circuit had had struck down a state law limiting marriage to a man and a woman Uh, The circuit court opinion said, no, can't do that, violation of equal protection. And it was appealed to the Supreme Court, and the court denied cert. It was a very strange thing, because by denying cert, the decision of the circuit was upheld, which meant it would be more and more difficult for the court later on to come back and rule that, in fact, laws upholding you know, making marriage between a man and a woman were legitimate because they had just turned it down. Um, I had lunch with Tony Morrow, who's one of the Supreme Court reporters, and I also saw Joan Biskupic, and I said, can you explain this? And they both gave me the same answer. The four conservatives didn't know which way Kennedy would go, and they were worried if he went with the liberals, they would lose the case. The four liberals didn't know which way Kennedy would go, And if he voted with the conservatives, they would lose the case. So no one wanted to touch it then. Later on, they had to take a case because there was a split between two circuits, and that almost automatically means it has to go to the court. One circuit upholding upholding the man-woman law, the other striking it down. And as it turned out, you know which way Kennedy went. But uh, now, was that a political decision? You bet your life it was. Was it a partisan decision? No. Political or strategic? Both. Well, politics is the art of strategy in many ways. I ask this because you actually quote uh, an interview that I had with Justice Breyer where he was insisting, I never heard a word of politics uh, at the Supreme Court. And I told the story of how I always tell my students, just like I tell all of you during every single one of these appearances, don't assume it's all politics. If you think constitutional law is all politics, you miss everything that's beautiful and constraining and meaningful about constitutional law. 
And then I went on to say, but often my students don't believe me. So what, what do you, what's your take on what, what you tell well, students look, about whether it's all politics? Presidents appoint people to the courts whom they believe share their views. That's their prerogative to do that, right? The problem is, at the time they appoint, they don't know what's coming down the pike. So for example, Franklin Roosevelt appoints people whom he believes, in fact knows, will support the federal government, you know, the New Deal laws. The problem is that issue is resolved by 1942, and then the major issue on the docket for the next 30 years is going to be civil rights, which hardly anybody saw back in the 30s. And that's when the Roosevelt appointees go all over the place. So, um, now you wrote an article I always um, uh, tell to my students about, um, we should stop worrying about how judges feel about Roe v. Wade, because even if it was overturned, it would make minimal difference. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, what's coming down. Uh, Jeff made a very good point in that article that what we need to ask judicial appointees is, do you understand technology? Now, so far, the court's been very good on this. And, as I, and when one of my students said, why? I said, they have very good clerks. <laughs> <laughs> There's that great story when the... Uh... Communications Decency Act uh, came before the court for the first time. Uh, Larry Lessig, uh, who is then clerking for Justice Scalia and is the guru of the internet, summoned the justices and showed them how to sign on to dirty websites, basically, so they would understand <laughs> how it actually worked. Of course, all of them refused to take the tutorial. Yeah. This, question of, this question of the impossibility of anticipating what comes up next relates to this next question. Thoughts on presidents whose appointees do what the president would oppose? Ike, Brennan, Bush, Roberts. Well, one of the greatest judges in the court's history, he's always counted as one of the top three, is Oliver Wendell Holmes, whom Theodore Roosevelt said he could carve a judge with more backbone out of a banana after <laughs> Holmes voted in the Northern Securities case against the government. Um, uh, Eisenhower said that Earl Warren was the biggest damn fool mistake he ever made. So... Um, you know, you can't tell. Once a person gets on the court, um, they really have, you know, their allegiance really shifts to the institution of the court. And um, somebody, let, let's take somebody like uh, Tawney, Chief Justice Tawney, who is usually remembered only for his slavery case, you know, decisions, Dred Scott. But if you take the slavery cases out of the Mix, he is as strong a nationalist as John Marshall was before him, and Jackson appoints, President Jackson appoints Tony to be the anti-Marshall. So you can't really, you know, you can't always tell how these things are going to work out. Wilson appointed McReynolds essentially to get him out of the cabinet, a big, big mistake. So like any great constitutional conversation, I wish this one could... Uh, go on and on, but we have time for one last question. The whole point of this wonderful book is the importance of the Constitution as a conversation and the contribution that dissenting views can contribute to that conversation. And this last question asks, is that view realistic in the sense of has dialogue among the justices become nastier over time, 
or is the court a good model for public discourse? You begin by just talking about Marshall and Jefferson sniping at each other, so it's not as if it was a Socratic seminar from the beginning, yeah. but has the dialogue become nastier, and is dissent still a constructive well, contribution to public discourse? Yes, it is. I mean, um, Linda Greenhouse, who was the former Times uh, correspondent for the court and who's now at Yale, has argued that Scalia's opinion, uh, example of nastiness is now spreading to some of the lower courts. Um, but one of the things that a number of justices have said is, well, um, we can't be too nasty. I may need her vote in the next case. I can't afford to alienate other people. Now, Scalia seems to be the exception to prove this rule, although his arch enemy, if you will, at least jurisprudentially on the court, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Two of them are opera fans. They go to the opera together. They sing in the opera together. Um, and if you, and uh, Scalia said, when Brennan was you know, alive, I think he and I agreed on practically nothing, yet I always considered him a friend, and I think he thought the same way. Um, I got a lot of calls from reporters after the last um, Scalia outburst wanting to know if this had happened before, and I said, yes, it did, but it never showed up in U.S. reports. There was nastiness before the written opinion, and in fact, um, when McReynolds issued a Scalia-type diatribe over the Gold Clause cases, the reporter of the court refused to put it into U.S. reports. Huh. And only the fact that there were some other people there do we know what, what he said. Wow. Uh, Scalia is an exception. Um, I've written that he's the conservative view of William O. Douglas, who used to say, the only soul I have to save is my own. And while Scalia doesn't exactly say that, that's pretty much what he's doing. He, if you take a look, when Ginsburg or any one of the moderate judges dissents, at least three and usually four other people will join her. When Scalia dissents, Thomas sometimes, Alito sometimes, but for the most part, he cannot bring four people to join his dissent because of his views. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't read too much into this. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking the great Melvin Yurofsky. Thanks, Jeff. So much fun. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. We want to know what you think. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all our sibling podcasts at itunes.com backslash panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On a personal note, I want to thank you, our dear listeners, for your great support 
and your passion for constitutional education. It has been so exciting to uh, have this podcast uh, grow and expand with you. It's been wonderful to see how hungry you are to educate yourself about the Constitution, how willing you are really to dig in to the best arguments on both sides so that you can make up your own mind. It is a privilege every week to be bringing together these great minds to discuss and educate all of us about these complicated but crucial constitutional questions. I'm so grateful that you're part of the National Constitution Center family, and I want to wish you very happy holidays and New Year. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.